I always start my messages that way, my daughter says, with that word. Well. So today I'm going to start with it emphatically. Are we well? The world is concerned about whether they are well. And usually when they're thinking about that, they're thinking about their physical bodies. Are we well? But I'm going to challenge you today is, is your faith well? For we have seen evidences of the difficulty of establishing faith based upon uh, even our physical experiences, our personal experiences, as we saw individuals coming to an empty tomb and seeing an empty tomb, but not believing, not having the faith that there is a resurrected Lord somewhere. We had seen also that they had difficulty establishing faith based upon the, uh, the testimony of others. We're going to see that extended even further today in our account here in John. And so we saw that they didn't, couldn't place their faith in the testimony of these eyewitnesses who had already been introduced to Jesus Christ. <coughs> and it is a reminder uh, that as earnest as we might be, as genuine as we might be, that fundamentally we don't want people to place their faith in us, in our testimony alone nor uh, in their own personal experiences. And these are not the foundation of good faith, a faith that is, that is growing and healthy, that is well. And so we come to uh, yet another example here of Christ's introduction of himself. And uh, I just want to challenge you and, and encourage you, is your faith well? Because good faith established on the right promises and premises is essential to our well-being. When Jesus Christ enters into the midst of the disciples, uh, his first words to them are the evidence of great faith. And we have seen that in our study of John 14, 15, and 16, that one of the pinnacles of the Christian experience of good faith, that evidence is that your faith is well-placed, that your faith is, is, is growing, that your faith is mature, is the peace of God. And so when Jesus Christ comes into their presence, what he says, peace with you, peace be with you. In his person, he is there, and the evidence is that this instruction from him it tells us that there wasn't peace in that room. Uh, you can imagine the, the tension in that room, not only of, of the confusion, where did they place his body, what could have happened here? Uh, there was Roman soldiers there. Were they complicit with all of this? Are we going against the government as well as the, the Sanhedrin? Uh, how many enemies do we have? You can imagine all that. But then you have another undercurrent going on in the room. And that is you have a bunch of uh, several ladies over here who have been basically told, you're gone crazy you girls are hysterical and you're seeing things, you're hearing things. We don't believe you or your testimony either. So you have all the hurt that they have uh, can, and uh, the separation, the division that that causes when you share what you've witnessed and they don't believe it. And so all of this is going on. Jesus Christ comes into the midst and says, peace. His first word is peace. 
we find that we are called to peace. And this is one of the strongest evidences of a healthy faith. We don't really have a record of exactly how long Jesus spent with the ten disciples there and the gals in that room. Uh, We're not sure uh, the conversation itself would only take a minute or two uh, for them to examine him. Remember, they didn't immediately uh, identify him. He had to again show them his hands and his side. We're going to see that repeated uh, with Thomas in our text today. And so when we look at this, we, we, we're not sure how long he was there. Um, and we're not sure how long Thomas was gone. He might have just stepped out for a short time and just missed this window of opportunity to have this personal visitation from his resurrected Lord. Uh, but Thomas wasn't there. Uh, he missed it. He missed out on the experience of others. And because of that, and because of the nature of who Thomas is, and Thomas is the skeptic. And we may think that skeptics are the ones with the poorest faith, but I will contend with you that many times the skeptic is simply wanting to make sure his faith is placed well. That is, he doesn't want to trust in just anything and be bamboozled. He wants to be Firm. He wants to, once he places his faith in something, to have it fully established and growing. Uh, and so yet, he is skeptical. He doesn't want to be tricked. He doesn't want to be falling prey to uh, the hysteria of the events. And he knows the condition of the lives and mindsets of his brethren there. Uh, and he saw his Lord die. He saw his Lord resurrect. Uh, Buried. He hadn't seen his Lord resurrected. He had witnessed these two things. He had seen an evidence of, for the last three days, of the turmoil it has put upon all of them. He knew the, the, the state of mind and of feelings in this body. And having measured it all out, he has concluded that it isn't quite time for him to place his faith in their testimony. So let's begin reading in chapter 20, verse 24. We'll read through the end of the chapter here in the Gospel of John. It says, Now Thomas, called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said to him, We have seen the Lord. So he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and put my hand in the side, I will not believe. And after eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace to you. Oh, deja vu. Then he said to Thomas, Reach your finger here, and look at my hands, and reach your hand here, and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen, yet have believed. And truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. 
And so we have this continuing account of the introduction of the resurrected Lord to his disciples. They're not just the apostles, not just the eleven, but we also know that he had met with the ladies in the garden, uh, Mary Magdalene, separate from the other gals. We talked about the, the uh, chronology of that uh, engagement to establish the, the conformity of the five accounts of the resurrected Lord in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and 1 Corinthians. And so we, we brought those together and demonstrated that. And so Jesus Christ had met with Mary Magdalene, probably the first, probably the second with, and then the group of ladies uh, that had been at the tomb where Mary Magdalene had left to go get Peter and John. Uh, the other ladies had apparently had this engagement. Mary Magdalene had the engagement. Peter himself had that engagement. And we come into that evening. The evening of the first day of the week is when Jesus Christ makes his, his appearance there at the, at the end of last week's passage where he comes into their midst, into a locked room, lots of confusion, lots of distrust, lots of animosity probably between people, and he says, peace to you. And now we have his disclosure of himself, and whether he has joined the men on the road to Emmaus already, and then come back, uh, so they're going to circle back, and they're going to have the testimony that they had also seen the Lord, they spoke with him, and they, and they were uh, they were. Uh, rebuked essentially by God's word, by Jesus' use of God's word, the Old Testament, uh, to prove that the Christ had to be resurrected. And we come into this now, and Thomas has missed out. He's missed out on all of these. That every event where Christ introduced himself, Thomas wasn't present. Uh, he was he was Johnny come lately, or too early. I don't know which one it was, but he he. He missed it. And he hears the testimony of all these people, and you can imagine the, the circumstance of the room changing so dramatically that if Jesus comes into the room that, that Lord's Day evening, and now all of the confusion, all the animosity, all of the questions, all of the fear, all, all, of, all of that is gone. Now they're excited. But no one realized or recognized until Thomas came into the room that, oh, Thomas missed out on all that. He still is carrying the burden of that fear, of that distrust, of that confusion. He's still carrying that burden with him as he comes into the room. And they run up to him and they say, we have seen the Lord. All full of excitement, just a totally different spirit about them. We have seen the Lord, and they come running up, and you can just imagine him going, he's still carrying the burden. And when you live a life where you have not placed your faith in the truth, you carry the burdens of life with you. And this is Thomas's condition. All the confusion is there. All the... All the animosity is there, and it may be even growing. How, what do you mean you guys saw the Lord? I haven't seen the Lord. That it doesn't produce peace because the wisdom of man can't. The experience of man can't. It is only when we place our faith in that which is of God that we can produce that testimony that it is well with my soul. Thomas did not have that. 
And while he certainly saw the evidence that they had seen the Lord in their countenance, in their attitude, in their very words, we've seen the Lord, uh, he refuses to believe it. And we encounter people like this all the time. That we can evidence our faith and evidence our faith and evidence our faith and they will refuse to believe it. This is a choice they are making. It's not that they cannot believe it, as others would, would uh, suppose and seek to draw out of God's word erroneously. Rather, is that they choose not to believe it. They have the capacity to believe. And Thomas here, weight down with all of the, of the concerns of the day, and then multiplied by the fact that others are getting something that he has missed out on, he simply says, I will not believe it. I choose not to believe it until I have the physical evidence in front of me. And I want to share with you that this is not good faith. This is not healthy faith. What Thomas is seeking is the faith comparable to what we saw early on in the Gospel of John. Remember the faith in the signs of Jesus? You should at least, that's the least faith, you should at least believe the signs, the works that I've done, Jesus tells them. You should at least believe them. That's the smallest faith. What he is talking about here is not mature faith, but the least faith. He's saying, I want to see this work, this sign of Jonah, that the one who was in the grave is now resurrected uh, by the, the power of God directly and, and not through an intermediate agent. And so we find that he is really grasping after the, the smallest of faith to believe the works. Because he certainly isn't believing the words of Jesus Christ, or he would have believed before he even heard this, because he heard Jesus say, as soon as he knew the tomb was empty, he would have believed. And there was only one that might be in that category among all of the hearers of Jesus Christ, and that was John himself. And I'm not sure he knew that Jesus was resurrected, but something wonderful had happened. He believed something. So Thomas isn't pursuing the belief in the words of Jesus Christ. He is not even, let alone, pursuing the idea that Jesus is God. But we're going to see him take a, a huge leap from the least faith that he was unwilling to invest to the highest level of faith. And can you go that quickly, that fast? Well, sometimes. Uh, for most of us, that's a very long process, a developing process, where we develop from this least faith to this intermediate faith. Well, I believe the words of Jesus Christ, not just the works of Jesus Christ, and then I believe that Jesus Christ is my God. And that development uh, can sometimes happen in a very, very short period of time, here almost immediately, to go from one to, through the other one and into the next one, uh, but for many of us, it takes that very gradual work of growing our faith into the place where we, what we call lordship, where we recognize Jesus Christ as our Lord and our God, which is the testimony that Thomas is going to give by the end of this encounter. And so Thomas makes this declaration, unless I see with my eyes and put my finger into the print of the nails, put my hand into his side, 
Uh, please notice, just seeing it wasn't going to be enough for, John, for Thomas. Why? Well, people can see things. And we have some evidence here of what his opinion was of their testimony. What was their testimony? We have seen the Lord. What Thomas says, unless I see it and touch it, I will not believe. What he has just brought into question is, can we trust our eyes? Could it be an illusion? Could we, some, you know, like the person on the desert that sees the oasis that isn't there, you know, can our eyes deceive us? Can, we, can this be just a trick? If you don't think that men have been able to manipulate light for a very long time and do tricks, you need to read your Old Testament because Pharaoh, during the time of Moses, had some wise men that could do tricks. Whether by some contempt by the power of, of Satan, but uh, the evidence is they were just magicians. And so Thomas, being the skeptic of the group, and we saw that earlier in some other encounters, you know, remember, you know, him and him and probably Nathaniel, the two skeptics of the group. But Thomas is like, I want to not just see it, I want to touch it. Because I want to know this isn't just an ab. Apparition that I, uh, uh, this is not just an apparition that I'm seeing. This isn't just a ghost. This isn't just a spirit. And if you think that that is a little of an unreal expectation, remember that we have another Old Testament example of the spirit of someone who is dead appearing before someone else. That was Samuel appeared before Saul. So yes, Thomas has some historical evidence to base this idea that there could be a spirit of Jesus there that wasn't fully, uh, in terms of a body, there. So he says, I want to see it, and I want to touch him. I want to put my hands right there, probably right there. And I want to put my hand right here. I want to see and touch him. Because the testimony of you seeing him is not sufficient for me. But we know that one of them had touched him. Don't we? Because Jesus Christ said, Mary, you can't, don't cling to me. You have a work to do. I'm going to be ascending to my father. My time here is short. Uh, we have work to do. You can't just sit here and cling to me. I'm not here just for your comfort. I have a mission for you. You go tell the others that I've risen again. Remember, we talked about that last week. That was a major part of the message last week of explaining that uh, concept of why can't you cling to Christ in his resurrected state? Well, it had nothing to do with his body. It had much more to do with his mission and, and his purpose in the resurrection. And so we know that Mary Magdalene had touched him and clung to him. But remember, this is women, and women's testimony is suspicious. That's just the way it is in the Hebrew mindset. And that's why if you want to be condemned in court and all you have are women witnesses, the likelihood is you're going to get let loose. Because they aren't reliable in Hebrew law many times. It was the attitude of the people. And so while we had one person that did say, I did cling to him, we have that I did touch him, 
predominantly everyone just says, we saw the Lord. On the road to Emmaus, we, we saw the Lord, we heard him. Uh, we didn't even look carefully at him, and we didn't recognize him. We talked about why we don't recognize him, because of his, dip, his, his transformed appearance. So Thomas's statement here uh, is, is beyond, I want to share what you've shared. His statement is, I want to touch him, not just see him. And if you think that that's something that is going to go away and eventually he'll believe everybody, uh, we are given some evidence otherwise, aren't we? Eight days go by. Eight days have passed. So if we assume it's the evening of the first day, then we are certainly at the evening of the of the second day of the week, we call it a Monday, uh, and after eight days, they're to gather together again. Thomas was with them this uh, this time, and of course, Jesus came in with the identical circumstances. The doors were shut, so no one let him in. Uh, he he did not come in by stealth. He simply comes in his resurrected body, stands in the midst of them, and declares the identical statement: "Peace to you." And there is. Ample evidence that he is probably standing right in front of Thomas. Thomas, you missed it last time. So here we are, almost identical circumstances, eight days later. Um, you're all in the room, and Jesus Christ now appears to them with the same declaration, peace to you, and now his attention is completely on Thomas. So we have two individuals among the 11 that are pulled out for special attention, one being Peter, uh, which we deal with and we talk about the need to reestablish Peter with Jesus' uh, in, uh, direct interaction with him. Uh, and now we have Thomas, the skeptic, the doubter, the one who says, I don't even trust my own eyes. I want to physically touch him to believe. And so he is confronted by Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ, by his declaration, reveals something right away. Before there's ever emotion or an activity by Thomas, we know something right away about Jesus Christ in his post-resurrected state. He knew the words of Thomas, though he wasn't there in the room with Thomas. He knew what Thomas was waiting for. He knew the points of pressure in Thomas's faith. He had heard the claim, I won't believe until this happens. And I want to share with you something, that when people declare that, I won't believe until such and such happens, um, God hears that. And if it is genuinely spoken, I'm convinced that God intercedes to make that so. Unfortunately, many times it's not genuinely spoken. That is, they say, well, I would believe in Jesus Christ except for all these examples of hypocrites that I knew were Christians before my life. Otherwise, I would believe. And I can undo that argument very quickly with people 
by simply showing them genuine Christians and saying from Scripture that it is very obvious that there are sheep, that there are sheep and goats, that there are tares and wheat in the field and, and keep your eyes here. And so we can take apart that. And once you take that apart for them and you, and you demonstrate to them genuine faith and the Christian life, uh, they come up with another excuse because it wasn't a genuine argument. It was an excuse and there's a difference. Thomas had a genuine skeptic's argument. Here's what's going to take to convince me. And it was honest. Meaning that once you meet this requirement, you will have convinced me. And I see from God's interaction with man that whenever man throws this up in front of God, honestly, that God meets that requirement. God, I want to believe in you, but I need this because I have such puny little faith. And God comes and meets them at that point if they're genuinely declaring that from a true heart. We've seen this in testimony after testimony of different individuals, um, and I know that's anecdotal evidence, but it's still there, and, and it's worthwhile to visit uh, people coming and saying, and in their testimony sharing, you know, I was in this place, I was searching, and, and I just said, God, if you're real. And then whatever filled in the rest of that sentence, and whether it took a week, a month, years, a decade, God revealed himself, and they said, met that condition. Because God wants, he desires all men everywhere to come to repentance. And if there's something, a stumbling block in your way to that walk of faith, to that going over that threshold into trusting in Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ wants it taken away. He doesn't put them in there, nor does he ignore them. And that is why we, as agents of Jesus Christ, are told, don't be a stumbling block to others. Don't get in the way of their faith in Jesus Christ, because Jesus himself will not put stumbling blocks on there except for the cross. The stumbling block of the cross is the only thing. Yeah, get over the fact that Jesus Christ died on the cross. How do you get over that? <laughs> the resurrection. You killed him. God raised him from the dead. This is the consistently the testimony throughout the whole book of Acts. You killed him. God raised him from the dead. That is how we overcome that stumbling block of the cross. But it is a dangerous thing if we are the ones who are throwing stumbling blocks into people's lives and say, well, I would believe except I saw so-and-so do such-and-such. When I hear that testimony, if I know the so-and-so and I knew that they did the such-and-such, -such, then I will go to them and say, you need to repent of that, and then you need to apologize to this unbeliever over here who's been watching your life and can't believe in Jesus Christ because of your life. But God doesn't put those stumbling blocks in people's lives. Thomas had a stumbling block in his life. He only trusted his fingers. He trusted what he could touch. Because that's real. If I can touch it, it's real. And Jesus Christ comes in and says, okay. If that's what's holding you back, genuinely holding you back, then I will resolve that right here and now. 
Reach your finger here, look at my hands. Reach your hand here, put it in my side. Don't be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas responds very quickly whether he actually did it or not. Some people contend that Jesus actually took his finger and put it there, took his hand and put it on his side. Um, it's beyond the text here. Uh, could very well be. Uh, but Thomas answered uh, without ever saying that he did that. He says, my Lord and my God. My position is that he didn't actually do it yet. He was commanded to do it. You put it in. But just hearing that God knows the stumbling stone of his faith was enough. Because that is more trustworthy than your touch of your hands. Jesus Christ just revealed in his words to Thomas, I know what's going on in your heart. I know what's stopping you from believing in me with all your heart, mind, soul, strength. And that's overwhelming. That God knows your heart. That is what penetrated Thomas's skepticism. It wasn't his hands. It really wasn't seeing Jesus. It was what Jesus just said to him. Jesus just said what was in his heart. He had spoken it to the other disciples, but Jesus wasn't in the room then. But here, eight days later, Jesus comes forward and says, I know what's holding you up, and I am going to reveal that to you right now. And this is the power of God's revelation, is to touch our hearts. We think we need our eyes to see things. We think our, we need our hands to touch things, to believe, and it doesn't. What we need to know is that God knows what's in your heart. And this is one of the most penetrating things about God's word. Why do people not want to read God's word? Because it penetrates into your heart. The revelation of God always penetrates into the hearts of men. When Pharaoh has a dream and no one can interpret this dream for him and Joseph comes forth with a revelation from God, Pharaoh is immediately recognizing the God of Joseph is God. When Nebuchadnezzar has a dream and he can't hardly even remember the dream and he wants people to tell him the dream in addition to its interpretation, none come forward, but Daniel comes forward. And he says, here's the dream you had, Nebuchadnezzar, and here's its interpretation. And Nebuchadnezzar's response to the revelation of God is, Daniel's God is the God to be followed. You see, this is the power of revelation, is to reveal our own hearts. I do not believe that Thomas actually put his hand on our Lord. He could have, he might have, but it wasn't necessary. What was necessary is that Jesus Christ revealed, I know what's in your heart, and I know what's keeping you from faith. And as you read through God's word, every, every excuse, no, I'm not going to say that, every reason, every stumbling stone of faith is revealed. Why do you think Satan wants you out of God's word? Because this reveals what's keeping you from faith in Jesus Christ. It is not that you need to have a vision of the Lord, although he has given that. And there's many, many 
individuals who have shared that, who had no access to God's word, but wanted to know the one true and living God and, and saw a vision of Jesus Christ or a dream, and, but Jesus didn't reveal anything to them except for one thing. Go talk to this person. They have the truth. Now it's up to you whether you're going to obey or not. And I've heard that testimony a sufficient number of times to know that God intervenes sufficiently for all men to place their faith in him. Let me say that again. God intervenes among humanity sufficiently enough that all men can place their faith in him if they so choose. But the best intervention is God's word. And even in those testimonies, what did they hear? Did they get saved at that dream? No, they obeyed the dream. They went and talked to so-and-so, and so-and-so, guess what? They opened up God's word and said, here's the revelation of Jesus Christ. And those people believed. What has Jesus done here? He has provided certainly the physical evidence, but that wasn't the penetrating element. The penetrating element of this conversation was the revelation, I know what is in your heart. And I've come to overcome it, that barrier between you and faith. And this is through revelation, not through the physical contact that is required. Jesus, in fact, doesn't say, because you have touched me, you have believed. In the verse 29, it says, because you have seen me, you have believed. Um, and uh, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. You don't require this. They don't require this personal revelation, although we're going to have an individual that's going to have a personal revelation of Jesus Christ, which is Saul on his way to Damascus is going to have that. Uh, and Jesus Christ is going to come to him and say, why do you kick? isn't it hard to kick against the prick, the goads? Um, and he's going to have that experience, but it's not necessary. And we come to a very precious promise of Jesus Christ that we overcome these things by faith in him, not because of what we see, not because of what we touch, but because of the revelation of God. God has shown himself. He has communicated himself to you. He's done it through his word. There's ample Evidence of a resurrected Lord, if you struggle with believing that someone raised from the dead, uh, so did the philosophers on Mars Hill. They struggled. They, they were listening to Paul, listening to Paul, listening to Paul until they got to one point, and that is that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, and uh, many scoffed. <laughs> you believe somebody rose from the dead? And they walked away. At the most powerful point of the sermon, they walked away scoffing because it's something they hadn't seen they hadn't touched they hadn't experienced but this is the revelation that we believe in and there is ample evidence if you will explore it and others have and come to the conclusion that that there is there is sufficient evidence to to prove this that Christ rose from the dead this account being one of them. And I want you to please notice that. Um, the account makes uh, the disciples really uh, poor uh, sampling of those that want to propagate a lie. Um, they're cowards before Christ, but courageous after Christ. 
They were perplexed, confused. They wouldn't even believe the evidence right in front of them of an empty tomb. These are not giants of faith that created a, a new religion. And so they're poor sampling for us to draw from to say, well, they just made this all up. Um, no, these were fishermen and tax collectors and the sorts, and they were hiding. And they didn't hardly believe him, even when he appears to them. We're going to see it again next week with, the, with one of the final appearances of Christ to them. And so uh, we come to this evidence that we have of a resurrected Lord. If we want to challenge that, I invite that people to challenge that. I say, go ahead, study it out, investigate it, explore it, uh, disprove it. I invite people to disprove Christ rose from the dead. Go ahead. I'm not afraid. You should be afraid if you don't believe it, because once I, you do all that, now you're going to have to deal with the facts. Are you going to now trust in Christ? Are you going to be like Thomas and say, well, once that barrier is overcome, now I'll believe. Now I'll believe. And the fact is, all of us, in our lives, if we look back as a believer, we know that there were just a handful of things, maybe, or maybe it's just down to one thing that kept us from trusting in Jesus Christ. And God in his mercy and grace overcame that for you. But I would contend he overcomes that for everyone. That everyone might come to repentance. But some, even when that is overcome, walk away from it. Because it's still your prerogative. Thomas here responds to what he has seen, what he has heard. Not sure whether he touched it or not. And he said, well, you're blessed. But there's a greater blessing, and I want to invite you to that greater blessing. The greater blessing is to not see and yet believe. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11. For you who are established and mature Christians, you know the context of Hebrews 11. We call it the faith chapter. Hebrews 11, 1 actually defines faith for us. But I want to back up into a few verses coming into it. I want to pack up into chapter 10, verse 35, so you understand the context of why he is giving a definition of faith. It says, Therefore do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise for yet a little while, and he who is coming will come and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith, but if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. And this is from the Old Testament. But we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. This is the concern of the author of Hebrews, is the saving of men's souls on a permanent basis. Because he saw many drawing back, they could not stand. And that is that weak faith that John showed, that you believe the works, but you don't believe the words. You believe the words, but not the person of Jesus Christ. And John has been trying to draw us to mature faith, the author of the book of Hebrews, whether it's Paul, Apollos, Barnabas, whoever it was, 
calls, is similarly concerned that you have this least of the faith that is not established and he wants them to be established. He doesn't want them to draw back away from it and, and God's pleasure being drawn away from you then. He says, I want you to believe to the saving of the soul. What kind of faith is that? What is it is the faith that the just live by? Please notice that. The just live by faith. We are not just saved by faith. We live by faith. We who have been justified by the shed blood of Jesus Christ now live by faith. The saving of the soul is certainly of precious importance, but the establishment of your salvation is to live by faith. Now we know the reason why it's so critically important we have a good definition of faith and the necessary work to remove the barriers of faith. This is now faith in chapter 11, verse 1, is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Please notice that. Thomas's faith to go from I won't believe it till I see it and touch it jumps forward to a faith that says my Lord and my God without ever touching him is the evidence there. Having seen him, but that only gives him the faith in the works. But if you want to get to that faith that says he is my God and I will live in obedience to him as my Lord and Savior, my Lord and Master, um, that requires a revelation. Faith is substance, it is evidence. And notice that now we have two words that we often associate with the physical realm. It is substance, in chapter 11, verse 1, it is substance, and it is of things hoped for, that is, things anticipated, uh, into the future, and we saw the future uh, desire of Jesus Christ for all men. In my Father's house are many mansions. It is the substance, it is the realness. Okay, when you hear substance, it is the realness. Don't think of it of the physical touching, but of the reality of what is coming. Faith is real. Is not imaginary. You may place your faith in a number of things all day long. You place your faith, I, I can't believe how many people you place your faith in all day long. When you drive through a green light at an intersection, you have just placed your faith in a bunch of strangers. Haven't you? You have placed your faith in a bunch of knuckle-headed Albuquerque drivers. You trusted them to stop at their red light or to not turn left in front of you across their green light. And you went, whew, right through that intersection. You're willing to trust them. You've never met them and you know they're bad drivers because you know what your insurance rates are. You know that we have one of the worst alcohol problems on the road in the United States, yet you go driving right through green lights. Are you crazy? You see, faith is real. You exercise it all the time in things that are untrustworthy. You actually believe your government most of the times. And your neighbors do too. You probably believe your doctor. 
Just don't believe the national doctor guys that don't actually practice medicine. We believe these things. We have faith in them. But we don't have faith in the revelation of God. You see, you show, you have the reality of faith is evident in your life. I can tell you what you believe in. And what you don't believe in. You see, faith is substantial. It is based in reality. I see your faith. Faith is evidence. And some would translate this word uh, confidence. It is, it is the sureness. So we have a realness about it and a sureness about it. That while it is something about the future, so when you're approaching that intersection and it's a green light, you have, you believe that your future is going to be free sailing right through that intersection, correct? Zoom. That's what your future is in your mind. You're hoping for a clear way. All it takes is one person. And not only is your future changed, your future may be ended. But you trust those other drivers to stop. And to stay stopped. But it's also the evidence, that confidence of, of, of the unseen. We have a confidence in what we do not see. Blessed are those who do not see and yet believe. And faith walks confidently through life. That while I may not see God today, I, I know, I have full confidence that as I walk by faith, that he will keep my way and I will never draw back, no matter what hardships come upon me, because I anticipate them, because Jesus Christ said they would come upon me, and so they don't make my faith waver. Um, opponents don't make my faith waver. Opposition of circumstances don't make my faith waver. None of these things, because I have a confidence, a full assurance, I have full evidence. I have, a, my faith is substantial enough that it stands, it doesn't draw back. It lives. It doesn't wither. And so Jesus Christ said, Blessed are you who do not see and yet believe. And, and what is the unseen? The unseen is the working of God. But yet when we get our spiritual eyes on and we look around, we see God's work at everything. To the degree we think God is running everything, but he's not. He's simply engaged in us. He is interacting with us on a daily basis. And we trust him because he is the God. Please notice verse 2. For by it, that is by faith, the elders, as the guys in ages past, the olders, the, the long goners, obtained a good testimony. By faith we understand the worlds were framed by the word of God, so the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. And so we're going to talk about that tonight in our discussion of creation uh, and the work of God, that initial work of God. But it is by faith, and, and it should be of no surprise to you that um, our world attacks this portion of faith early and often. Because if we can undermine your faith that everything came in existence from nothing by the very 
voice of God, the breath of God, if we undermine that, now you have no reason to believe in God from here forward. So why is the argument about cosmology and, and or, origins so important? Because without a biblical understanding of them, please, by faith, understand the truth. Now we are called upon to trust two divergent views that are completely opposite. One is the view of God's word. The other one is the view of, quote-unquote, science. And you are called to believe one or the other. And do not be so foolhardy as to think you can believe both. For they are completely opposite, and the one's purpose is to destroy the other. You cannot believe that. And so our faith begins here in this chapter of faith. How do we get, as we understand the framing of the world, how it was built, we understand that from God's word, that it came from nothing into all that is existing by the very breath of God. Now, why is that so critical to your confidence of your faith, to the substance and evidence, the reality of your faith? Because it is the God who created everything that you are trusting in. And if he can create everything that exists out of nothing, what can he do for you? Can he take care of your future? Can he take care of your sin? Well, he, he has one way, through Jesus Christ. He has become sin for you. An impossibility for the holy, holy, holy God to become sin. But he did it. And only he could. So we are placing our faith not into uh, a fairy tale, as so many in so many blogs I engage with say, oh, you believe the fairy tales of the Bible. And I'm like, well, you believe in the fairy tales of, the, of Gilgamesh. Uh, which are less substantiated than anything, any writing on the planet. And, and you believe that um, over God's word. And you think God's word is derived from that. How foolish is that? If you don't know the story of Gilgamesh, it's okay. Go Google it. No, don't do that. Just read God's word. It's the truth. And so I encounter them. Why? My faith is not in a fairy tale. My, my faith has a confidence and a realness about it because there's a trustworthiness that is consistent in Jesus Christ. And when Jesus comes to Thomas and communicates to Thomas what's going on in his heart, it brings you to your knees. And Thomas, whether on his knees or not, his heart is on his knees saying, my Lord and my God, I will live by faith. John tells us, if you go back to John 20, he ends the chapters that we end this morning, saying, I've written these things. I've written everything, but I've written a lot, and what I've written is that you may have enough to believe. But notice what he's written about. He's written about the works. Do you see that? In verse 39, and truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples were not written in the book, but these signs are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Just like Hebrews 11 was concerned about you having 
life of the saving of the soul and the live by faith, these tandem things that must come together, must be, they're, they're two sides of the same exact coin. You can't have one without the other. A lot of Christians are preaching a, a two-headed coin where get saved, get saved. No, it's saving of the soul and the walking by faith, living by faith are, the, are unified. He says, I've written these things, these are written, these signs, including the sign of the resurrection, written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life as a name, that you might go from believing the signs, at least, at least believe these t- signs. There's ample evidence from not only his followers, but his enemies, that these really existed. We have archaeological evidence to affirm everything here. We have substantial reason to believe these things. These things are written that you could have the least belief. His teaching, sufficient of Christ's teaching, is revealed to us through God's word that we could mature in our belief. And whatever it is that hinders us from getting to that highest level of faith, where I will live and walk by faith, where I will make the declaration, he is my Lord and my God, and I will never draw back. I'm convinced you need to go to God's word with whatever it is in your heart that prohibits you, that that keeps you. It says, I won't believe until. And I invite you to read God's word with that in your mind and discover that it will undo you. It will resolve that issue. I'm convinced of it. Because I know my God, and he wants all men everywhere to come to him in salvation. He sends his prophets out that who knows, maybe everyone will believe it. Perhaps they'll all repent. God will not throw hindrances to your faith in front of you. He will resolve those skeptic points you keep stumbling over. But he will not do it in a vacuum. He will not do it in the context of you searching out science and sin and, and politics. He will do it as you come and examine his word because it is the revelation of God that overcomes the stumbling blocks of faith. Let's pray.